In 2004, a new rapper named Kanye West released a song called Jesus Walks. In this song, he was confronting the ways that hip-hop music and hip-hop culture was glorifying immorality. And what's more, he was on top of the charts telling the world of hip-hop that they needed Jesus. And he lamented that instead of welcoming Jesus, hip-hop culture rejected him and welcomed drugs, sex, and guns instead. He was told that he could rap about anything except Jesus. And in the song, he cries out in desperation, saying, God, show me the way, because the devil's trying to break me down. Jesus, walk with me. Now, looking back at at the song and the popularity of it, I really appreciate Kanye's voice. Though I don't presume to know his motives or his standing before God. And please don't get your theology from Kanye. And please don't listen to the unedited version of this song. Okay? I told you. (laughs) But I took a risk at this reference because I appreciate that he criticized hip-hop culture from within hip-hop culture as a hip-hop artist. Because it's one thing for us Christians to criticize the culture that we live in. But then again, we don't belong to this culture. We belong to Jesus, right? So it makes sense that we have our critiques of the culture, but we have critiques as outsiders. But when someone who belongs to the culture criticizes the culture from within the culture as an insider, I find that uniquely refreshing. And maybe you do too. Now, like most subcultures, hip-hop culture then as now is a sample of the world at large that has turned their back on God, preferring to embrace the darkness of immorality to the light of Christ. And this isn't new. We remember that there was a day when the crowd and popular opinion preferred Barabbas to Jesus, right? They cried out for Jesus to be crucified instead of a criminal. This is the world that we live in. And what Kanye was saying back in 2004 is still true now. He touched on a tension we believers still live with today. And this is the tension. How does God keep our faith from failing while the devil is after us in a world that hates God? Or, to put it more simply, how do we believers remain in this world but not become of this world? I think scripture gives us more than one answer, and one of the answers is that Jesus walks with us. Though not bodily with us, he is present with us by his Holy Spirit, isn't he? The Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of truth dwells within each and every believer. But there's more. God also keeps our faith from failing in this world by prayer. By prayer. Our faith is not failing because... Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed for us believers. Indeed, is praying for us now. And the effectual prayer of Jesus, the righteous man, avails much. His prayer and current intercession for us is one of the ways that God preserves us in this world that we live in. Though the devil is trying to break each and every believer down, Jesus is holding us up by prayer. Remember what Jesus told Peter. He said to Peter, Simon, Simon, 
Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus prayed that Peter's faith wouldn't fail, even though he was being hunted down and targeted by Satan. And God answered that prayer, because history tells us that Peter was martyred dying as a believer. Jesus' prayer kept Peter's faith from failing. And I think what can be said of Peter can be said of all true believers. And it's this, that Jesus prayed for us too. And God will answer his prayer for us too. Our faith won't fail, true believer, because Jesus prayed for us too. And we see his prayer for us in John chapter 17. So meet me in John chapter 17. And as you do, as you turn there, I want to just refresh you about the Gospel of John and tell you that when you come to John 17, you come to the tail end and I think the climax of what is known as the Upper Room Discourse or Jesus' Farewell Discourse. In this section of Scripture, Jesus speaks about the intimate relationship believers have with the three-person God. In these chapters, Jesus is opening his heart to those whom he has set his everlasting love on. He's comforting them before he goes to the cross with breathtaking truths about things that are true of them. And at this point, all the crowds of unbelievers and even Jesus, uh, sorry, Judas, the betrayer, are gone. Okay, It's just Jesus and his real ones now. And he's seeking to strengthen their faith in God just before he departs from the world that they will remain in. And he seals this discourse with, I think, one of the most theologically rich and instructive prayers known to man. He prays to his Father for his followers, just as a priest would pray for his people, and just before he offers himself up as a sacrifice for his people. And in this prayer, we'll see the many means that God uses to preserve us, to keep us in this world. So whether you're fed up or afraid of being a Christian in today's culture, I think your faith will be strengthened by hearing Jesus' prayer. To point, the, the point of today's sermon is this. Jesus' prayer shows his heart for his Father and his followers in the world. Now with this in mind, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come today recognizing, Lord, that your word is still working in mighty ways. And we trust that it will continue to do so. And so we ask by faith that you would open people's hearts to the good news even today and that each of our eyes would be set right back where they belong on Jesus, the Lord of all. And Lord, that you'd refresh us, renew us, bring us to a deeper sense of our need for you today. Each and every one here, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, the first thing we're going to see is that Jesus' prayer shows his heart for his Father's glory. And we're going to pick up in verse 1. John 17, verse 1 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. 
Jesus has, again, just opened his heart and comforted these 11 true believers. And now he prays for them. He starts by lifting his eyes up to heaven and seeking first God's glory. God's glory in John's gospel often refers to the cross work of Christ. So as Jesus stands in the shadow of the cross, knowing that his time to die has come, he prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. He's basically praying that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That salvation would come for God's people. And it will come for his people through the cross of Jesus, the Savior. This cross cost Jesus his life. This salvation was purchased by his blood. And don't miss the significance of Jesus' words here in verse 1, to be glorified. These are claims to deity. He's claiming to be God. This would be blasphemous if we prayed it, right? But Jesus was aiming to glorify God and to be glorified as he accomplishes salvation for his people through his death. Now, to verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Here the Lord Jesus is highlighting his authority over all flesh, meaning all humans. But notice how he uses his authority in verse 2. The Father gave him authority to give eternal life to all whom the Father gives him. Now this is deep stuff. Eternal life uh, in the book of John is a repeated phrase, a repeated term. It's used over and over again. It's uh, even a central theme, we might say, in John. So what is eternal life? You're going to see it over and over again if you read this book. Eternal life, as verse 3 says, is this. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Okay, so Jesus has authority to give eternal life to whomever the Father gives him to give eternal life to. And eternal life is not simply life that never ends. It is a personal relationship with the eternal God himself through his eternal Son. Eternal life is an intimate relationship with God. We know him. Not in some general way, but as he revealed himself through his Son. In a personal way, through a person, as Jesus reveals the one true God to us. But as you see often in the Gospel of John, eternal life is only for those who believe. There is condition. There is a condition to this. One passes from death to life through faith in Christ. You must come to him as he has revealed himself and as he has told you to come to him. There's no other way into a relationship with the true God but through Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So eternal life is a personal, experiential, relational relationship with God through Christ. I like what Leon Morris says. He says, The only way to know God is through the revelation he has made, and he has revealed himself in his Son. It is not possible to know God in any way that we choose. We must know him in him whom he has sent, namely, Jesus Christ. So let me ask you a personal question. Have you believed in Jesus? 
Do you have eternal life? Have you come to know God through his son, which is the way he has revealed himself? If so, rejoice and be glad. You have eternal life, and you belong to the eternal one. He will not let you go. Let's continue in verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So Christ's perfect life, sinless death, and victorious resurrection brought glory to God. He accomplished the work God sent him to do. Now he says in verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are from everlasting to everlasting. Meaning God has always existed as the glorious, majestic, three-person God. Even before he spoke the material world into existence, there was never a time or place in which God was not glorious. He is glorious. He is from everlasting to everlasting. And Jesus now speaks of that glory that the Father and Son shared before the world existed. In this prayer, he's requesting to return to that glory and splendor that he enjoyed with his heavenly Father. And this prayer was answered after the cross and resurrection because as Hebrews says, after making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, there are verses in this chapter and in the Bible uh, like this verse which just beg for more digging. And I encourage you to do so in your own time. But today we're just flying over the surface, okay? But I want to show you how truths like this and how Jesus' prayer keeps our faith from failing as we walk with God through this world. His prayer is showing us his heart for us. And the next thing we see is that Jesus' prayer shows his heart for his first followers. Look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. So in these verses, Jesus is praying for his first followers who were with him. But I still think these verses can be applied to us, though secondhand. Jesus reveals God the Father's name to those that the Father gave him, which means that Jesus makes the whole person of God known to his followers. Not that we can grasp all there is to know about God, but that Jesus has revealed the truth of who God is to us. He truly is the word of God who explains the true nature of the true God to his people. Now notice also that God the Father gave Jesus the Son a people out of the world. He says, yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. So they belong to the Father, the Father gave them to the Son and they are people marked by obedience to his word. Jesus is emphasizing that his followers belong to him and the Father now. They no longer belong to the world that they live in. They have come out of the world. He has taken them out of the world, chosen them out of the world, and they are people who are marked by obedience, by keeping his word. It says in verse 5, sorry, 6, they have kept your word. And Jesus continues in verse 7 to 8, Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. 
So not only did God the Father give a people to his son, he also gave his son the words to speak to his people. And true believers are convinced of the authority and origin of Jesus' words. We know that Jesus is and has given us the word of God. We can trust everything that he says, even though we don't understand everything that he says. He's the truth. We're convinced of it. We believe this even beyond our understanding. Because we believe in a God who is far beyond our understanding, right? Like Peter, we've concluded that Jesus spoke words of eternal life. Remember what Peter said in John 6? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's conviction. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus has the words of eternal life and that he is the Holy One sent by God, the Holy One of God? Are you struggling to believe that today? If so, talk to someone here. Ask around about Jesus. Start reading the Bible. Good place to start is the Gospel of John. You can join William and the outreach team to do that every second week. If you don't have a Bible, just ask us. We'll get one for you as well. So let's continue here. So we're looking at verse 9 now, where we see Jesus continues to pray for his people. He says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. His prayer here is not for the world, but his prayer is for his followers who he called out of the world to be on a mission to the world. And he prays for them because they belong to God and they keep God's word. And because of this, Jesus is glorified in their lives. And Jesus prays that they be preserved in loving unity in the name of the Father. Look at verses 11 and 12. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of, uh, of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Okay, so... What's this about? The unity of mind and the unity of heart that Jesus is praying for is important because it reflects the unity between the Father and the Son. This unity is not different organizations, different Christian organizations coming together to do Christian events, though that is a good thing. That's merely an external uh, unity. This is a relational bond, a unity from believer to believer and from believer to their Lord. We are united to Christ and united to one another by God's Spirit, by God himself. And Jesus prays that we be kept in God's name, meaning that we be kept in God himself. This is the bond that we're to have as fellow believers. As Andreas Kostenberger says, the unity Jesus prays for here is an all-encompassing relational reality that binds believers together with each other and with their Lord. A unity that can be achieved only through the regenerating and sanctifying work of the Father, Son, 
and Holy Spirit. So don't tell me you know everything there is to know about the Christian life. <laughs> Look at this prayer. This is so far beyond us, isn't it? Isn't it just mind-blowing? Look at verse 12 and notice that it is none other than Jesus himself who has both kept and guarded his people from falling. Except for Judas, of course, who though he walked and talked with Jesus, betrayed and turned his back on him, resulting in destruction. But this was actually in fulfillment of Scripture. In other words, Judas was responsible for his betrayal of Jesus, but God planned to work redemption through that wicked act. Look at verses, uh, actually verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Here Jesus prays that his followers would experience his joy in their lives. They will experience this joy... As they abide, as they obey, as they walk with him in this world. This theme is recurring in John, but it's worth highlighting that those who love God will obey God and they'll have God's joy in them, which is an appealing motivation for obedience, isn't it? Joy. That Jesus' joy would be fulfilled in us. It's a motivation to obey. But our joy is a diamond in the rough in this world. Because the world around us hates us and hates our master. They may even call us evil for preaching his word in this world. But we don't belong to the world, even though we remain in it for the time being. Now, did you notice that the prayer of Jesus starts to have an outreach feel to it? And what stands out to me is the responsibility he is giving to his people. God's plan for reaching uh, people in the world is for his people to reach them. God chooses to use us, his people, in the world to reach the people in the world. Look at verses 15 and 16. I do not ask that, that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So Jesus' prayer is not that we get saved and leave the world in which we live or to create some big Christian community centers walled off from the world, where the mentality is it's just us four and no more, right? That's, that's not what Jesus is praying for here. He doesn't pray that we'd be removed from the world, because he accomplishes his work in the world through his people who receive, keep, and preach his word in this world. His mission continues through his followers as they are fruitful and multiply, Disciples in the world. Although it may be difficult and uncomfortable for us, the place of believers in this world is not to withdraw from it, but to speak up in the world and influence it with the word and the Spirit's help. Let me say it another way. Though we do not belong to the world, we Christians belong in the world. As lights speaking the words of Christ into the darkness. And Jesus prays here that God would keep us from the evil one or the influence of evil in the world. Now this gets pretty personal here. We don't simply need to be delivered from 
the devil, who's trying to break us down. We also need to be delivered from doing the evil that the devil tempts us to do. His prayer is that our mission to the world would not be discredited by uh, Satan's schemes, which result in disgracing the name of Christ. But he's praying that we'd be kept from the influences of evil in the world by, by being kept under the influences of the word. Okay, he's praying that we would be influenced by the word as we remain in the world. Now I see that as we continue and transition to verses 17 to 18. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So here's a reminder that growing in godliness uh, doesn't just mean we stay inside our Christian bubbles and get sanctified. Right? No, keeping at a distance from ungodly people in your life isn't a godly posture towards the world. Jesus shows us in this prayer that he'll keep us as we get out on mission. That he's committed to both his people's sanctification and their mission. His people's sanctification and his mission, right? You don't need to exclude one for the other. So you don't need to just pick a, pick a year here. Uh, this year I'm going to focus on evangelism. Next year I'm going to focus on reading the Bible and studying it and getting deep in it. No, no, no. You can do both at the same time. In fact, it's God's will for us to both be sanctified and to be sent into the world in which we live. So do you want to reach your unsaved friends with the gospel? Jesus has commissioned you to go and to do so. Remember he says later on in John, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. But you say... But I also want to grow. But you don't have to pick and choose between growing in godliness and going with the gospel. You will grow as you go with the gospel. You are called to do both as a believer. You as a believer are to keep the word, yes. Obey the word, yes. And preach the word to the people in the world that you live in. This is how we grow in godliness. This is obedience to his word that says to go. So today, fellow believers, we have a unique opportunity as a church to do this, actually. Our plan is to go and have an outreach event after the second service. So uh, we have an opportunity to put this into practice right away. <laughs> so we may have opportunity to meet people that we've never seen before. And we have opportunity, probably, to meet people who don't know the Lord. So let's pray for an opportunity to speak to them about Jesus. And then when the opportunity comes, because I'm convinced when you pray that prayer, God does bring it about. <laughs> it's praying God's will. And when that opportunity comes, to start speaking about Jesus and eternal life. You don't need a pastor to do it. You don't need an elder to do it. You can just do it as, a, as we meet as a community. You can talk to people about the Lord. You could ask them if they have a Bible. We could just do this very simply, but we have an opportunity as a church at that park in about four hours to do this, and let's do it because the Lord has told us to both keep his word and to go and tell people about his word while we live in this world. You have the word. You have the spirit. You are well-equipped as a believer. Jesus has sent us to keep his word and to go and speak his word in this world. Now back to our text in verse 19. Jesus says, and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. 
Scripture says that Jesus became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. He was the truly sanctified one, and he can and does sanctify us, his people, by his spirit in the truth. And now we'll consider how his prayer is directed towards us believers. The next six verses are what Jesus prayed for you and me, believers today. And these few verses may take your breath away, and that's because in these verses we have been given a glimpse of how Jesus Prayer shows his heart for his church. Jesus' prayer shows his heart for his church. Look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Okay, this is Jesus' prayer for us who believed the gospel through the apostles' word as it was handed down, right? If we are believers today, it's because we heard about salvation. And salvation was recorded and told to us from the scriptures. We heard through the word of the apostles. Someone repeated the gospel from the written word of God to us, right? These words were recorded centuries ago by the apostles and prophets, and we believed in Jesus through their word. This reminds us that God's word will bear fruit in history and in this world. It is a powerful God. It is God-breathed. It is inspired by God. And God works through his word in the world. Believers keep it, and they continue to pass it on through the world and through history. God sees to it that his word permeates through the world and permeates through generations through believers. Just like it did through Jesus' first followers, And it's an effective word that changes people's lives, doesn't it? And one of the sure signs that it's changed your life is that it brings about a family-like harmony, a family-like accord with with other believers. It brings about a, a family bond that you have with other Christians. I say that because of verse 21, which says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So we Christians have a spiritual unity and fellowship with other believers. And there's a missional element to this unity which we cannot ignore. Remember that Jesus told those disciples, these very disciples, before this prayer in John 13, this, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So here's what this means. The church's love for one another, its unity in love for one another, is a visual aid of the gospel. The invisible gospel must be preached and believed for anyone to be saved. Yes, that's true. You must hear and believe that Jesus is Lord and that he died for your sins and God raised him from the dead. You must believe this to be saved. Absolutely. And God has also given the world a community of people which serve as a visual aid, a visual proof of that gospel, that this gospel is still effective and working even today. The credibility of our witness has not only to do with our lips and lives, it also has to do with our love for one another. Our abounding love within the church is a great visual aid of the gospel to the world. 
It is our prayer that unbelievers would see our love for one another and conclude that Jesus is Lord. So my fellow Christian, you aren't wasting your time working at those tough relationships in the church. There is a, yes, God-pleasing reason for this, absolutely, and a missional reason for this. When you express love to your fellow Christian, the Lord is pleased and the world watches on. It matters not just for the unity of the church, though that, does, though that is true, but also for the evangelizing of the world. It's this visible oneness, this visible love in God's people that God uses with his word and spirit to per- persuade people to believe in Christ. Oh, how they love one another. For the unbelievers around us to be staggered with our love for one another is a good thing. It's this visible oneness that we want to see and we want to pray for and Jesus prays for. We want to keep this oneness in our church. One of the reasons God keeps us in this world, friends, is to give a living proof of the gospel to the world. Oh, there's people that still believe this. There's people that actually do this and practice this. There's people that have staked their lives on this. There's people that live this way. What a marvel. A loving church helps the world to see and to interpret God's gospel of grace and love. A loving church helps the world to see and interpret God's love. So how are we doing, church, at loving the other Christians in this church? What about the ones that really annoy you? (laughs) Do you see them as your family? Oh, come on. Everybody gets annoyed. (laughs) And everybody gets annoying, right? Do you see them as your family? Do you see the priority of your unity and love towards them as it relates to our outreach as a church? These relationships matter. They matter for our unity, they matter for God's glory, and they matter for our mission as a church. So take pains to be careful and to work hard at the relationships within the church. There's a lot at stake here. Let's look at verse 22 and 23 now. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Well, Christ has revealed God's glory to us. We see Jesus with the eyes of faith, full of glory, grace, and truth. And now we have the privilege of imitating him to the world as we faithfully follow him. We get to reflect his glory in some way to the world as, we, as he transforms us into his image, into his likeness, by his spirit. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. Remember Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So God transforms us to be like him as we behold God's glory in Christ. And again, this has an impact and influence on the world that we live in. 
So don't separate your sanctification from your outreach. Your walk with Christ is connected to your witness for Christ in this world and your love for him and your love for fellow believers reflects him and his love as well. So is our life consistent with the one we claim to love? Are we becoming more like him in his glory, grace, and love? Are we becoming more loving as a church? Oh, and before I forget, did you notice the end of verse 23? Jesus prays these words. That the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. We could go on and on and on about this for a long time. Can't today, but can you believe these words? God the Father's love for us who are in Christ is as extravagant as the love that the Father has for his Son. Now, we aren't the Son, but we are in the Son. So in some marvelously mysterious way, we have a privilege of being God's children in Christ, and God has shown us that extravagant love because we are in him. We have been included in the greatest love story of all between the Father and Son. And God knows our name. He knows our past. He knows our sin and our lack of faith. Yet, He loves us like this. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. This should bring joy to our hearts as believers. Here's the heart of the Father for you, believer. And we see in verses 24 to 25, or just 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So the purpose of our salvation, a purpose of our salvation is, is, is shown here. It's not just to enjoy fellowship with God here on earth, though we enjoy that but to enjoy fellowship with God forevermore in the new heavens and the new earth as well. Jesus' prayer now gives us confidence that those who belong to God will enjoy his presence in fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Now let's finish with the last two verses, verses 25 to 26. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Through Jesus, our mediator, we know that Jesus was sent by God. He has made this known to us. We have experienced this personal revelation of God through Christ. But unbelievers have not made such a conclusion that Jesus is Lord and God sent him to be the Savior of the world. But we've concluded this only because Jesus revealed God's name to us. He showed us who God really is, his person, his identity as the true God. We are no longer people left groping in the dark to find out who God is. Jesus himself has made God known to us. And he continues to do this through his spirit who illumines the words that Jesus spoke. The Holy Spirit makes God's word words personal in our heart as we believe them. 
Now, Jesus seals this prayer for all believers with a promise of his eternal love, saying in verse 26, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. God loves us with an everlasting love. And we experience this love because God dwells in us. So, we experience the personal love of God by his very personal presence with us. I like how Leon Morris says it. He says, The love of God is thus associated with the indwelling of Christ. We know the love of God because the Son dwells in our hearts. We know God's love for us is true because we experience it because he has not abandoned us. So, believer, Christ himself assures us of his love for us by his presence with us and in us. In ways beyond my understanding and your understanding, he says that he is in us and we are in him. Which means Jesus walks with us. Jesus loves us and he unites us believers together in his perfect love to show the world who he is. Surely this perfect love casts out fear, right? So how does God keep our faith from falling when the devil tries to break us down? The answer is simple and profound. Believer in this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, Jesus has overcome the world. And Jesus has not left you alone in the world. Jesus walks with you. And Jesus prayed for you. And Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. Does that sound like a reality that will keep us while we remain in, but not of this world? I think so. Let's pray.